Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and colleague Derek Davison. And this is actually going to be a little bit of a special on the recent Irish elections. And in order to give us some perspective on what is going on, and I, I know Derek has some hot takes, come, so I'm going to throw to him in a second. But we've brought back Daniel Finn, who did a special with us on Easter about the Easter Rising of 1916 and is going to be a future guest to discuss uh, more history of the IRA. But we thought we might get Daniel's take on the election. So, Daniel, thank you so our, much for joining our us. Ireland correspondent, basically. Our, our, yeah, you're our Ireland correspondent. We've dragooned you into being an, our correspondent. I hope that's okay. <laughs> that's perfectly fine. Thank you for having me. Uh, great. So, Derek, I know you've got a hot take, so why don't you start start off? Well, I want to build up to the hot take, but we're, we're here, obviously, uh, to talk about the May 5th Northern Ireland Assembly election, uh, the victory of Sinn Féin, which means eventually there should be uh, a nationalist first minister of Northern Ireland, which is a first uh, historically. Um, before we get into the election, though, Daniel, can you take people through sort of what home rule in Northern Ireland looks like, how the government is supposed to be set up? There's a power sharing arrangement, for example. Um, you know, can just kind of give people a sort of overview of, of the government and then we'll, we'll get into the election results. Well, the system for devolved government in Northern Ireland, it was set up at more or less the same time as the devolved parliaments in Scotland and Wales, the other regions of the United Kingdom. But it's quite different because in those countries, it's a straightforward majority rule parliamentary system. Whereas in Northern Ireland, because of the previous history, it was felt that you couldn't have a simple majority rule, whoever gets 50 plus one or whoever gets a plurality of the vote in the election forms the government because political identities are based on communal identities. People vote for predominantly unionist or nationalist parties, although that is beginning to shift to some extent. So you wouldn't get the same switch over from one party to the next, from one election to the next. And the system that existed when there was devolved government before from the 1920s to the early 1970s was one based on permanent unionist rule. The unionist party was in charge of every government for half a century. So this means that every party that clears a very modest threshold of the vote is entitled to form part of the government. It's not something that comes about through horse trading and negotiation, they're automatically entitled to a certain number of cabinet positions. So what you end up with is a government that involves most of the parties that are represented in the Northern Ireland Assembly. And within that government, there has to be representation from the two blocs, the Unionist and the Nationalist blocs. When a politician or a party member is elected to the Assembly, they have the option to designate themselves as a unionist, as a nationalist or as other. So there has to be a majority from within the unionist bloc and from within the nationalist bloc. And at the head of this government, there are two positions, the first minister and the deputy first minister, which actually have the same powers. So it's more of a symbolic matter of being first minister rather than deputy first minister. And the right to nominate the first minister goes to the largest party within the largest bloc. The right to nominate the deputy first minister goes to the largest party within the second largest bloc. In every 
elections since 1998 up to this point, that meant that the largest unionist party had the right to nominate the first minister now because of Sinn Féin's victory last last week. That means even when a devolved government is, is set up or restored, Sinn Féin will have the right to the first minister post and the DUP, which was previously the dominant party, will only have the right to nominate the deputy first minister. So without getting into the now uh, inevitable, if you uh, read the discourse on Twitter, reunification of Ireland, uh, which we'll get into. How in dare you, Derek? Um, yeah. So this is where I'm, my hot take is going to come. I'm, I'm pro uh, reunification. I'm a I, mean, here. I, I, um, I disagree with Derek here. I don't know enough about it, but I'm just, I want to stake out my I'm position. I'm not anti-unification, <laughs> but, but I don't think this election means that much uh, for unification one way or the other. Um, but we'll get to that. Um, talk about the the results here, um, particularly, you know, sort of what, in your impression, uh, fueled Sinn Féin's victory and, and the DUP's collapse. Really, they lost. Uh, they dropped uh, almost seven percent uh, from from the previous uh, assembly election uh, back in 2017. So, uh, you know, there's Brexit. I think that. Uh, you know, goes into this. There are, you know, other factors that um, kind of fuel this. One of the interesting things that I noted was the uh, Alliance Party, which I is not really, doesn't really fit into either box, unionist or nationalist, did uh, fairly well uh, compared to how it did uh, the last time around. Uh, so give people a sense of, of, you know, what was this sort of campaign about and, and what led to this outcome? Well, the main reason why Sinn Féin came first was because of that drop in DUP support rather than a big surge in favour of Sinn Féin. The DUP vote did go down quite sharply and that was in line with all the polls that have appeared since autumn 2020. In fact, the DUP performance wasn't as bad as some of those polls might have indicated. There were polls having them placed third or even fourth they were threatened with not just losing their position as the largest party, but even losing their position as the largest unionist party. And in the end, they were still, by some margin, the larger unionist party, but they were very much outpaced by Sinn Féin. And that is because of a number of factors, but primarily the fallout from the Brexit crisis, which the DUP backed as the only major party in Northern Ireland to call for a leave vote in 2016. And after the referendum, while there was a leave vote across the whole of the UK, there was a majority Remain vote in Northern Ireland. And there aren't enough nationalist voters for that to have been solely a nationalist vote, although it appears that the vast majority of nationalists voted against Brexit. Also, a significant minority of unionists ignored what the DUP said. So the DUP was in a challenging position after June 2016, which they didn't really appreciate, in particular after the 2017 UK general election when the Tories no longer had a majority and the DUP had a kind of kingmaker role at Westminster where their 10 MPs were crucial for keeping Theresa May in power. They really seemed to have become almost intoxicated with their position, their short-lived position of influence and let it go to their heads and ignored all the difficulties that Brexit might pose for them. And it all came back to haunt them towards the end of 2019 when Boris Johnson became the Prime Minister and he desperately wanted to cut a deal with the European Union that would be different from the deal that Theresa May 
had negotiated and that he could take to the voters in a snap general election. And the simplest thing for him to do was to agree with the Irish government and with the EU that there would be a special status for Northern Ireland so that Northern Ireland is still in a much closer trading relationship with the EU than the rest of the UK. And that means that there are certain trade barriers between Northern Ireland and Britain rather than between the two parts of Ireland. So that was a disaster for the DUP. Not necessarily a disaster in terms of its practical importance, but it, certainly in terms of its symbolic importance. And having a British government that was headed by someone who had made a great show of being a unionist and a British nationalist like Boris Johnson in effect say that Northern Ireland doesn't matter to him, the DUP doesn't matter to him, unionism doesn't matter to him. And that has been responsible for the, the attrition of support for the DUP. And the difficult thing for them was that they were losing support on both ends, whether it was a unionist voter who wasn't keen on Brexit, who would have preferred to stay in the EU, they might gravitate towards the Ulster Unionist Party or even towards the Alliance. But on their right flank, they lost about 5% to a party called Traditional Unionist Voice, which was set up after the DUP went into government Sinn Féin by one of their former politicians who was totally opposed to the negotiations with Sinn Féin and the compromises with Sinn Féin. And that man, Jim Allister, led his party to its best performance to date. So they're losing votes on their more liberal flank, but they're also losing votes on their more right-wing conservative flank. And it's very difficult. It was very difficult and it still is very difficult for, th for them to see how they could win back support on both ends at once. All right. So here's uh, here's the, the hot take part, I guess. What is your impression? Wait, wait, of Jake, Jake, I want you to insert some cool hot take music because I like when Derek gets gets excited. <laughs> so so do that uh, here. Dun, dun, dun. You figure it out. You'll make it better than me. <laughs> uh, uh, all right. Uh, three, two, one. Oh, I don't think we need to uh, count it for that. Keep it uh, in, Jake. Don't? Keep it oh, in. Oh, my God. No. You've got to be kidding me. All right. So, all right. My, I mean, I think we've been, you know, circling around this, but my um, conclusion from this is that uh, despite the, you know, somewhat symbolic historic significance of having Sinn Féin, uh, you know, the Sinn Féin leader being, you know, becoming first minister instead of deputy first minister, uh, and despite the fact that you have, Sinn Féin is polling quite, quite well, it seems like in Ireland ahead of, you know, whenever that uh, next election will be held 2015. I think it's scheduled to be held. Um, despite that, uh, I, I don't see this as a watershed moment um, for the Irish unification process. Um, I'm, I'm actually a little bit more interested in the rise or the the improvement uh, of you know party this party that that is outside the sort of binary the the sort of nationalist unionist binary um but but what's your impression of the significance historically of this vote uh and what it may mean moving forward for the the irish question well it's certainly a lot more complicated than saying because you now have a Sinn Féin first minister that means that a referendum and a successful referendum on unification is on the short-term agenda. The Sinn Féin president, Mary Lou Macdonald, said afterwards she thought that a referendum could happen within the next five years, but I don't think we should take that too literally. I think she needs to say that kind of thing to generate this sense of forward momentum, but certainly the Sinn Féin leadership in practice will be moving quite cautiously because the last thing they would want would be to have a referendum and then to have a decisive defeat 
for the cause of unification because under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement you can only have a poll on partition every seven years but if it was a decisive defeat it might be longer than seven years before they had another chance at it. So the the vote for Sinn Féin was 29% which is significant in, in the sense that their vote went up slightly compared with previous elections. The polls that have been showing Sinn Féin outpacing the DUP had also been showing Sinn Féin doing somewhat worse by by a greater or smaller margin than they did in 2017. So in that sense, it was a success for them as well as being able to take advantage of the DUP's disadvantage um, or decline that they were able to hold on to their existing vote and increase it somewhat, which is quite an impressive achievement for a party that has been in government in Northern Ireland for most of the time since 2007. It does reflect, in a way, the irregular nature of politics that normally, if a party had been in government for that length of time, it would be absurd to have an election campaign with the slogan, Time for Real Change. You know, it reminds me of that bit in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, where the incumbent governor is talking with his aides about how they can spruce up their campaign. <laughs> and one of them says, we should get some of that reform stuff. And he's like, what are you talking about? The incumbent can't run on reform. But in this case, it's not as absurd as it might seem because people perceived the DUP as being the obstructionists and the ones that were preventing Sinn Féin from getting anything done in government. And so there was a sense that, well, if we have a Sinn Féin first minister, if they're the larger party, this may begin to unblock some potential that was previously being frustrated. So that was certainly the thinking of nationalists who who went for Sinn Féin and then perhaps it might generate momentum towards more ambitious constitutional change. But as things stand, you know, looking at the size of the total nationalist block in this election, it was about 40%. The unionist block in total was a little larger than that, a little over 40%. And you do have that significant non-aligned block that is mainly composed of the alliance. So that, what that means really in terms of a referendum, if you look at the polls on Irish unity and how people might vote in a referendum, I would take most of those polls with a pinch of salt because the fluctuations in the margin, it goes all the way from a margin of only 4 or 5% in favour of the union to 20 or 25%. And that has to be more a question of how the question is worded and the sample size and so on, rather than this mad fluctuation of 15 or 20% in thinking about the constitutional question in the space of a, a few weeks or a few months. And obviously by the time a referendum was actually held, it's a kind of a circular question in a way that the British government is not obliged to hold a referendum unless there's clear evidence that there might be a vote. So various indicators, election performances, opinion polls and so on. So a border poll wouldn't happen unless it seemed plausible, if not certain. And I think from the the pro-unification nationalist side of the argument, while Sinn Féin says it would be enough to have a 50 plus one majority, they would want it to be more decisive than that because things would be a lot more manageable if there was, let's say, a 60% vote in favour of unification than if it was a 51 or 52%. There would be less likely to be strong opposition perhaps even armed opposition from unionists who, who weren't in favour of it. The growth of that non-aligned block around the Alliance Party, it is 
in a more indirect or more mediated way a positive development from the point of view of Sinn Féin or others who are in favour of unification because if someone is an alliance voter in the past in the 1970s and the 1980s the alliance was perceived as a party that was pro-union uh, the union with Britain but liberal and non-sectarian whereas now it's perceived as being more of a, an agnostic party that quite a few of the candidates who were successfully elected for them last week come from a Catholic nationalist background so it's not that being a member of the Alliance Party or a voter of the Alliance Party you don't necessarily have a strong position either way on the constitutional question you have a more pragmatic instrumental view they're referred to as constitutional agnostics and so that's a section of opinion that should be a lot easier to win over depending on the wider context and depending on the arguments that are made than someone who is a died in the wool DUP or other unionist party voter um okay i think i mean we don't want to belabor this. So uh, why don't we end on this question, which is uh, to go outside of the UK. Um, what effect, if any, do you think this vote may have on Irish politics? Again, it's more complicated than a, a simple relationship of cause and effect, but I think it does help generate a sense of momentum for Sinn Féin, which has always been very important for them, especially since the peace process of the 1990s, where going into that peace process and accepting the Good Friday Agreement involved some very drastic ideological U-turns for the Republican movement. They reneged on principles that they had declared time and time again in the 1970s and the 80s and into the early 90s. And they managed to hold on to a large section of their base, both their activist organisational base and then their wider electorate. There was attrition, there were defectors and splinter groups and so on. But for the most part, Sinn Féin held on to its base and, and a large part of that was because they had this sense that they were going places, even if it meant veering off the straight and narrow path, if the straight and narrow path before um, 1994 and 1998 was leading you into a brick wall, at least by trying something else. You had the possibility of going places, even if there was no guarantee of that. So I think it adds to the sense of confidence or the mood mu music, so to speak, around Sinn Féin's progress on either side of the border. But in the South, where their immediate goal now is to get into government, and not just to get into government, but to lead a government, the main challenge for them is how they carry out some aspects of their programme for the South, because the basis on which they've won support in the South is not by being the party that's for United Ireland. Everyone knows, of course, every Sinn Féin no voter knows that its number one goal is to unite Ireland, but it's not that there's been a massive upsurge in the number of people in the South for whom that is also their, their main priority. If you look at the polling that's been done, Sinn Féin voters have a somewhat greater sense of urgency about Irish unity than the population in general, but not by a huge margin. Uh, what has driven them towards Sinn Féin has been the issues like the, the state of the health system, the housing crisis, and Sinn Féin has put forward a quite detailed platform of social democratic policies, which they are promising to enact if they form a government. So the chances are the overwhelming likelihood is that if Sinn Féin forms a government after the next election in the South, which has to happen by 2025, there will not have been a border poll by then, let alone a successful one. So Sinn Féin will need to deliver on that front. 
I think even in the optimistic scenario for them that while they are in government in the south, a border poll happens in the north and it's successful. If they come back to the electorate after five years and say, well, look, we've achieved a united Ireland, a lot of people will say, that's all very well, but what, what have you done about health? What have you done about housing? What have you done about wages and working conditions? So they're going to face all the challenges that have faced parties of the left and the centre-left in the last 20 years or so, trying to get anything done within the current framework of you know, the neoliberal economic model and paradigm that's still very much dominant in, in Europe. So that raises a whole wider set of questions. The same challenges that have confronted Syriza or Podemos or the left bloc in, in Portugal or Mélenchon or, or Corbyn in Britain are going to face Sinn Féin in, in the next five or ten years. Well, Daniel, uh, thank you so much for talking to us about the recent elections. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to having you on the show soon. Thanks. Thanks for having me.